Well, Peter von Ketz will be giving the first talk at the Biz News Investment Conference from the 1st to the 4th of March. And, well, Peter, good to be talking with you. I presume you're at home in East London. <laughs> yes, I am, Alec, and it's quite amazing. When, 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 when I get introduced as a person that uh, lives in East London, uh, generally speaking, people give me kind of a glaze. They get that like glazed look over their eyes. <laughs> Because PE and East London are uh, somehow seem to be the same city <laughs> when we're thinking of the Eastern Cape, <laughs> yeah, and and very different cities as we as we well yeah, know. Very, um, very different, yeah. But you you're close to the beach, you're close to nature, and that appears to be your driving force. But maybe let's just go back a little bit before you became a full time adventurer. You were actually a school teacher. What drew you to that? Yeah, I think that um, teaching has always been an important part of my life. Um, and I mean, I, I suppose, Alec, if you had asked me when I was at school, what were my chances of becoming a teacher? I would probably say zero. But, you know, life morphs and things change and you grow. And I really became uh, interested in education. And then I, I put my heart and soul into it. You know, I, when I finished school, I spent about eight years traveling around the world. I did two years in the army. And then I changed quite tremendously during that time. And then I started studying teaching. And then I went and taught at Saks down in Cape Town. Um, and then when I moved up here to East London, I taught at a little school called Lillyfontaine School. And I uh, set that up as an adventure-based school, uh, the high school section and junior school section uh, eventually. And um, it's going amazingly. Um, at that school now, and I left teaching in 2005. Adventure-based? You know, Alec, I, I think a lot, of, a lot of big schools, and excuse me if, if you're watching this or listening to this and you, you're, you're really into rugby and cricket, and, and it's amazing, and it is good, um, but I think that there are so many young people that fall through the cracks in a system that are, you know, they're not good rugby players, they're not good cricket players or hockey players or tennis players, but they are good at something. Um, and adventure just really creates an opportunity for people to shine. It builds confidence. It builds resilience. Um, and obviously, those are such an important part of our lives as we get into um, our adult lives and our business lives and our corporate and executive world. The Eighth Summit, which I've been trying to find copies of, Peter. I think you need to speak to your marketing guys. It's a brilliant book. And, and I don't say that lightly. I, there are over 100,000 books that are published every year. Of those, uh, no more than a hundred. So it's a very small fraction are actually worth reading because uh, a lot of those books are pushed out as marketing materials and so on. But, but yours, it took the scales from my eyes on the whole area of adventuring. Before we, we, we talk about that very first journey or your incredible journey of, of rowing across the Atlantic, had you always been pulled towards that? Were you always wanting to do something different and maybe? As a boy, were you a scout? Were you a rover? What shaped you in this direction? Um, Alec, you know, I don't want to sound cliched, but I think all of us have a sense of adventure in our lives. Um, and, and I think um, personally for myself, I grew up um, in Southeast Africa, Namibia. And as a child, it was, it was quite a fantastic place to spend um, your days as a young boy. And we used to have all sorts of weird like gangs used to go and collect snakes and scorpions and play with them. And, you know, who could find the biggest scorpion? And so I'm starting off really, really small here. So there was always this excitement of, you know, I want to get home, but then I want to get out into the bush and I want to go and explore and I want to go and find and I want to go and, 
and discover and, and build little dens and um, just be this adventurous kid, you know. Um, and then from there, it just grows into something bigger. Now we are, all of a sudden, we're going and doing holidays or we're going camping in the mountains or we're going for five-day hikes, you know, um, along the coast. And then eventually, it's things get bigger and bigger and bigger. And that's what happened with me in my life uh, until I got to the stage where I said, okay, if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to continue on this trajectory, I'm going to have to do this full time um, because there's no other time to do anything else. And so you start becoming a little bit creative um, and, and all entrepreneurs will know what I'm speaking about. Even being a professional adventurer requires a certain amount of, uh, of entrepreneurial skills and uh, and I, and I think you just grow and you make things, if you're really passionate about what you do, and that also sounds cliched, but it's real, um, you can really put anything together. And that is the spirit of adventure. You know, those olden days explorers like Scott and Amundsen and Shackleton, they were all amazingly famous and wonderful. And I think that over the years, modern explorers and adventurers, um, the, the kind of national backing that they uh, that they used to um, have so much has kind of fallen by the wayside. And, and I think because of that, because there's not so much attention given to, you know, big modern explorers, that uh, people in general have kind of lost that real sense of adventure, you know, the, because they're not, you know, in grips with it the whole time. I mean, Scott's expedition to the South Pole and, and Shackleton's as well, Shackleton's amazing story, gripped the world for years, like really, really, because there was no like Facebook or uh, LinkedIn or Twitter or anything like that then. Um, so they really relied on the story when they got back. But the sense of adventure that people had in those days was, was profound. And I think that a lot of us have kind of lost that over the years. So I've been just so privileged, Alec, to be a South African that's been able to go and experience such wonderful expeditions. When I say wonderful, I, I've got to just warn you that they are most of them are generally extremely difficult. Um, and if you had to say to me, are there a lot of fun? I would go, mm, <clears throat> not a whole lot of fun, but you know, finishing them is, is uh, that sense of satisfaction is huge. So adventure, I think, is the basis of all of our lives, of all of our um, businesses, uh, those people that are entrepreneurs. I think there are quite a few entrepreneurs coming to uh, the business conference, looking forward to meeting them and sharing some of my stories with them as well. And um, they all understand what adventure is. It's an integral part of their business. I suppose the obvious question is, how do you fund all of this? And you've got to be entrepreneurial to make it, make sure that you, you can uh, afford sure. to row across the Atlantic and, and to walk sure. to the South Pole and so on. Sure. So therein lies the trick. <laughs> like, I mean, like if you want to do a big expedition, they're very expensive. Any of the polar expeditions are super like just really expensive, mainly because they're just difficult to to get to. Basically, there's one of three ways that you can do it. In. You can get a, a corporate or a sponsor um, to sponsor your expedition and you provide them with imagery and, and coverage uh, for their brand, brand coverage. Um, and that's one way. So let's ex give you an example for my solo row. I was sponsored by um, Liberty. Um, and they put media watch companies onto me, and my return to them was 60 times what they put in. So whatever they put in, they managed to get their brand exposure 60 times more than what they paid for. 
Um, so that's because yeah, that you're doing crazy. You're doing crazy things. You you uh, you're rowing across the Atlantic, which not many sane or even insane human beings would be looking to do. So I can I, I get why a guy sitting in an office is saying, mm, "Okay, we'll pay for him to do it." <laughs> It's not as easy as that. I mean, I the person that I met with um, Liberty was a guy, Rex Tomlinson. I was introduced to him. Now that I walked into his office and he grabbed my arm. I can't tell you exactly on air what he said to me, but he told me that I was one crazy dude. Um, and um, they were really excited about chatting to me. And 10 minutes later, I had my sponsor. And that was it. Done. Boom. Signed, sealed. But it is not always like that. It's a grind these days, especially now. I'm planning a big expedition for a couple of years' time. And, and it's a grind. It's not easy. So that's the one way. I like the second way is to get a television commission. So you get a Discovery Channel or, you know, one of the big uh, channels. I haven't managed to get my way into Netflix yet. <laughs> there are lots of henchmen at the door. And then the third one is um, to, to actually take people with you as part of an expedition that would pay for the experience. So... Um, it's not something that I, I particularly enjoy doing. We did it up in the, in the Arctic in the North Pole uh, where we took four people and they put a certain amount of money in. So like really wealthy people put a certain amount of money in and that covered the cost of the expedition. And they had a six-week experience that no humans will ever be able to get again. So, And, and that's the kind of thing that you uh, have to pay for. I mean, it is, it is expensive in any case. Creative thinking, in other words, you've got to look at things, each expedition, very differently. Uh, but l- let's go through your adventures, the ones you write about in the Eighth Summit. Well, you, you tell us the story of how you got to want or drawn in to rowing across the Atlantic for the first time. I was busy planning an expedition from Madagascar to South Africa. I wanted to kayak um, across that uh, Mozambique Channel. Um, and it's about 380 kilometers, and that would be an unsupported kayak. So nonstop, quite dangerous, um, obviously, because, you know, there's lots of current and um, we'd have to have chosen the weather well. In any case, so I was busy planning that. And I was paddling out at one of my favorite surf spots, Queensbury Bay, just up the road here with a good friend of mine, Hannes Fenter. And um, we were just paddling out, talking, joking, having fun. And as we got to the back line, was a person that I'd seen many times before, but had never actually met. And Hannes introduced me. He said, hey, um, Pete, this is Billy. Billy wants to uh, row across the Atlantic Ocean. And Billy, this is Pete. He's busy planning a you know, kayaking trip across the Mozambique Channel. You guys have got lots to talk about. And off you went. So we started talking and Billy and I started chatting. And eventually he said to me, you know, Pete, I'm actually looking for a partner to come and do this. Uh, it's, it was the Atlantic Growing Race, the Woodvale Atlantic Growing Race at the time. Um, would you like to do it with me? Um, so I said to him, um, Billy, yeah, I would. Um, but my wife, Kim, was pregnant at the time. She was seven months pregnant. And I said, there's no ways I can go home now and say, hey, Kim, you know what? I've got this great idea. I want to go and row across the Atlantic. <clears throat> I said, so let's wait. Uh, so for the time being, no, I'd love to, but let's wait. You know, maybe when um, baby's born, Hannah would be born, um, you know, then things would be different. In any case, I said, phone me six months later. And six months later, he phoned me. And he said, Pete, I'm still looking for somebody. And I said, okay, let me go and chat to Kim. And, you know, Kim's a super important part of my team. We had this long conversation, difficult conversation, um, but a good one. And I ended up uh, phoning Billy back and saying, you know, Billy, I'm in. And so we 
started planning and preparing for um it's a five and a half thousand kilometer race from um Lagomera and the Canary Islands. So it's just off the coast of Morocco, uh, across the southern part of the North Atlantic Ocean to Antigua and the Caribbean. So it's kind of in the middle of the Caribbean islands. Um, yeah, so nonstop, um, unsupported, unassisted, which means nobody's assisting you. So you don't get onto any other vessel. You don't see anybody. Nobody can give you food or water or anything. So you completely are alone for that journey. And so in that conversation with Billy, we decided that we would like to win the race. If we were going to go and do it, we'd like to win it. Um, you know, if you're going to put that much effort in and it is a race, then, you know, let's go break a few records and let's go race it. And that's what we did. We uh, got Tim Noakes as part of our team and um, he helped us just with um, a little bit of, uh, you know, physical training, um, you know, some plans and some food plans. Um, that was uh, before the whole banting thing came, became quite famous. Um, and um, we started training. We spent two years training, getting our boat. Um, and then we went and rode the race, hour and a half on. So this is how we rode, an hour and a half on, hour and a half off, uh, 24 hours a day. Um, so there wasn't a second during that row that one of us wasn't rowing. Um, and we did that for 50 days and 12 hours. And we won the race. There were 23 boats taking part in the race um, from all over the world. And um, it was uh, an incredible amount of suffering and, and struggle and sacrifice <laughs> to get there. But um, I, I suppose any good story uh, comes hand in hand with those three things. Um, and, you know, we were mentally and physically prepared um, for those uh, challenges that we faced. And, and it was because of those things that we were able to, to win that race and break the world record for that particular race. So that's how it all started, like the big expeditions. That's how it all started. Um, and then um, straight after that, that row, I remember meeting up with Kim um, on the quayside in Antigua. And as I got in, you know, it's a long time to be out at sea with another man on a seven-meter rowing boat. I grabbed Kim, I put my arms around her, and I said, Kim, if I ever say I want to do something like that, again, you've got to stop me. <laughs> and she looked at me and she said, yeah, Pete, don't worry, I absolutely will. <laughs> and so, um, and the story know, couldn't, weeks, con the story continues uh, because that, that certainly um, wasn't the, the development. But just to, just to ask you on that, before we move away from it, this race, is it still held every year? In fact, um, if, you, if you want to, it's quite interesting. Um, the guys are busy. I was, rowing, I was watching a little video this morning. The guys are busy arriving in Antigua as we speak. Um, literally, the fifth boat has come in. Um, and so the first boat came in about two days ago. Um, and, you know, over the next few weeks, the boats will start arriving. Um, <clears throat> Is there so, a big prize at the end of the day? No, there's no Is, prize. There's no, no. prize. So no, what no is you, what is the motivation then to do it? I suppose um, you know it's it's quite a big challenge. Um, it's it's quite unique rowing across an ocean. Um, there there are so many things that happen to you while you're out at sea and while you're rowing that are just so beautiful. The connection with the planet, the connection with the ocean, stars. Um, just everything is, is absolutely, it's sublime. And, um, I suppose the, the big physical challenge is amazing. 
Um, and if you have the inclination and if you've got the time and you can actually put it together, it's, it's something really worth going to do if, you know, the sea is your thing, um, which it is mine. Um, and um, so, so, you know, do the guys win money winning the comrades? I'm not sure. I think it's also, Man, the, yeah, know, I think challenge. it's like a medal, you know. You know, so I think there's an element of, of ego in that as well. I mean, I hate to say that, um, but it is nice winning a race and, and breaking a world record. You know, there's, there's a certain amount of pride that you can um, associate with, you know, doing something like that. Um, and, you know, as a professional adventurer, that, that is something that's, that ticks many, many, many boxes. Um, what a wonderful adventure it is. Um, but as I, again, as I said, it's like lots of suffering um, and, and, and um, many things that big CEOs uh, of, sorry, that CEOs of big corporates would experience, you know, away from home for a long time, uh, long hours, uh, sleeplessness, um, you know, working with teams of people. There's, there's, a, there's definitely a, a cross-pollination of, you know, um, experiences with being an adventurer and, and, and um, running big teams. And there uh, you, were, you were in a team. You were a duo. There were two of you rowing. And uh, despite saying that your wife, Kim, who you can tell us about, she her, herself is an adventurer. So we'll, we'll get onto that in a moment. Telling her that, you, that she should stop you from doing it again. You did go and do it again, but this time do it, doing it on your own. <laughs> Yeah, so um, so when I finished that first row, um, it kind of dawned on me that no African had ever rowed any ocean solo before, and that kind of needed to be done. And um, you know, I, I suppose it's like saying to um, somebody who's just given birth um, naturally, "Would you like to do that again straight away?" They'd say, "No, whatever happens, no, I don't want to do that again." But then. Over time, things wear off and um, you start just remembering the amazing things um, that happen and, and you start yearning for that adventure again. And that's what happened with me. Um, so I decided to put something together and see if we could, um, you know, get the right sponsors and build a boat to do a, the solo row. And two years later, there I was on my new boat that I named Nyamazela. It's a closer word, uh, which means endurance or perseverance. Um, and, and I did, I took part in the same race. That race was then the Woodvale transatlantic rowing race. Um, it is now the Talisker ocean challenge. Uh, now it happens every year, but in those days it was happening every second year. You didn't win that one. Uh, no, I didn't win that one. And actually that race was, um, quite a, um, quite an epic race because it changed the nature of ocean rowing. Um, and, one of the participants that took part in the race built this boat um, that would really be able to utilize the wind um, to an incredible degree. Um, and so it, it almost became unbeatable to, you know, so I was rowing a rowing boat, like literally um, a rowing boat with a little cabin on it, um, which which made it still rowing. And they built a boat that was designed to, catch as much wind as possible without actually putting a sail up. So um, uh, the person that won the solo row um, beat, there were four-man teams, there was an eight-man team, there were two-man teams, and he beat all of them by two weeks. 
um, which kind of gives you, and I was rowing hour and a half on, hour and a half off, 24 hours a day. I did that for 76 days on that row. Um, and, and I think from then, I mean, there was, there's just been such turmoil in the, um, the rowing world at the moment. Um, you know, from those people who, who like to say that I've rowed it and those people who say that I've used, you know, this craft to row it across. So it has changed. It has morphed. Um, but I'm happy, you know, um, the, uh, I, you know, I, I rode every single stroke on that race as if I was going to win the race. Um, I mean, I came second. Um, I think I was 12th boat. There were 52 boats that year um, that raced. So 12th out of all the two-man and four-man boats is, is not bad. <laughs> Extraordinary. Extraordinary. And, and yeah. what a story. If, uh, yeah. in, in the book, and I'm not going to spoil it, but uh, there was a lot that you explain uh, that happened during that time. But the one thing that has stayed with me, practically speaking, uh, I'm not sure if you saw the Netflix movie, uh, My Octopus Teacher. Well, after that, I certainly never ate calamari again. Um, and after reading your book, I've, there's no way I'll have a Dorado ever again. Tell us that, <laughs> that story. Alec, it was um, one of, one of the, the most incredible experiences. You know, we, we think we know the animal kingdom um, and we haven't even touched the surface. Uh, and I had one storm. Let me, let me tell you this uh, quick story. I had, I had one storm um, during the solar row and it lasted six days, five nights. And I was on parachute anchor for that time because um, the wind was and everything was against me. If it was behind me, I would have done something else. Um, and so um, straight after that storm, I noticed uh, Dorado underneath my boat. Um, and I, I didn't quite know. I knew that they were coming to get shade there and they use it as refuge and a place to hunt from. So they hunt mainly flying fish that's what they eat um and um straight after the storm as i was rowing um you know every sunrise and sunset i would see these fish jump these dorado jumping 20 30 meters away from my boat out the water making splashing making noise and every now and then i would i would hear them and they'd come and hit my rudder hard bam 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 and i just really didn't understand i was on a carbon boat so it makes a lot of noise you know it sounds like steel and um and as the weeks went past, this would happen every sunrise and sunset. These fish would jump out the water. Um, and as the weeks went past, this would happen. They would get closer and closer and closer to the boat until I could literally see their eyes, you know. Um, and I, I started working out that these guys um, were not just jumping out the water, that they were actually connecting with me. That, so they would jump out and make eye contact with me. Okay, so but not like this. Okay, they can't do that. It's, you know, the one eye. <laughs> Otherwise, they'd look a little bit stupid. And um, <clears throat> and um, and I, I, I started realizing that these guys were connecting with me because if I wasn't on deck during that time, like they would um, jump out the water and smack their bodies hard against the water. Bam, bam, bam. All swim up to my rudder and hit my rudder while I was in the cabin hard until I got out. Until I made eye contact with them, they wouldn't stop. And as soon as I got out on deck, um, they would stop. Now, it might just be me, and I may just be projecting, but I don't think I am. Um, because this happened for the six weeks until the finish line. Um, so from that storm, middle of the Atlantic, six weeks later, arrive in Antigua, and they're still underneath my boat, still doing exactly the same thing. I finished at 9 o'clock in the morning. 
Um, and at six o'clock that morning, I had my last swim with them. So three hours, I mean, I'm literally right next to the island. Um, had my last swim with them and I said my goodbye. So every day for those six weeks, I would jump overboard when it got really, really hot because it can get hot. Um, and I'd swim with them and they'd swim around me. And they'd just look at me as they swim around me. And sunrise, sunset, they would jump out the water, make eye contact with me. Extraordinary, extraordinary story. And, and, and many of those. Sure. Uh, can't wait to hear more of them at the conference. Uh, but before we, we, we finish off this discussion, uh, your, your uh, centenary race to the South Pole. 2011 with another adventurer who's well known in South Africa, Bram Malherber. How did that all come about? So when I got back from um, the solo row uh, with Kim, when I was on the key side with Kim, I, I looked at Kim and I said, next time, if I ever say I want to do something like this again, Kim, you really <laughs> got to stop me this time. And she said, I would actually, when we got back to South Africa, she came up to me and she said, Pete, you owe me. And I said, of course, Kim, are you, you know, what's the story? She said, well, Next expedition is mine. So I said, okay, fantastic. So she ran from our house here in East London to Mozambique uh, along the coastline, a marathon a day. Yeah, ran, yeah. So a, a minimum of a marathon a day. And then mountain biked inland borders of South Africa um, to a place called Blow Pits, which is just below Harbis Falls. Got onto a kayak, kayaked uh, the Harib Orange River to Alexandria Bay, the mouth. So that's the southern border of Namibia. And then put her running shoes back on and ran back to East London along the coast. 6,800 Ks. <laughs> How long? And you think, uh, four and a half months. Oh, 6,700, yeah. Did you meet up with her along the road? Yeah. So, so it was an amazing journey around South Africa. So um, I supported Kim and we had our five-year-old daughter. She turned six during that trip. Um, with us, Hannah, and then we uh, had a gap year student, um, a super hardcore farm girl from East London, and um, so she was 18, and she came with us as well, and that was that was the team. And we met up with people, you know, along the way that would either join Kim for, you know, a little bit of the run or part of the mountain biking, um, and it was a spectacular journey. And, Alec, I have to just tell you this, you know, South Africa is a wonderful country. Now, obviously, we've got massive problems in many areas. Um, and before we left, people would say to us, Pete, Kim, uh, you know, come on, you can't be serious. You can't go and do this. It's going to be too dangerous. These areas are too wild. You, you know, Kim's going to get, uh, uh, you know, accosted on the beaches or, you know, you guys are going to get hijacked, whatever. I want to tell you that when we got back from our trip, we were so almost pathologically inspired and positive about this country and its beautiful people it just absolutely blew us away the worst problem we had on the whole trip were vervet monkeys um yeah just stealing our food and stuff but it was amazing i'll never forget in vendor this big chap coming up to us and we had just got out of a um a little trading store and we were having our little cokes me and kim i was riding with kim at the time and he came and he took Kim's arm and he, he said, listen, what are you guys doing? And we went, oh, okay, we're going to tell the story again. So we explained what we were doing and he, and he said, I want you to know that this, this place over here is, is my village. It's my people. And you are welcome here like my own brother and my own sister. So if you want to stay, you know, and, and that's, kind of the, that's kind of the feeling that we had the whole way around South Africa. It was just 
just amazing. But during that trip, um, a guy called Bram Mohibu, you mentioned, phoned me. Uh, I was actually sitting on a little copy, um, and I get this phone call, um, and, he, and he says to me, Pete got an opportunity to go down to Antarctica uh, to do a race um, to the South Pole to commemorate Scott and Amundsen's trip 100 years ago, so the centenary race to the Pole. 888-kilometer race, uh, unsupported, unassisted, to the South Pole. Uh, do you want to do it with me? I said, Brahma, you nuts. Of course I want to do it with you. I mean, who in their right mind wouldn't? And uh, But time was quite, you know, this is now, uh, it was May, no, April, and uh, we were leaving in uh, December, so time was tight. Um, and... I needed to finish the expedition first before I could start training. I'd never skied before, so I needed to learn how to ski. I needed to get acclimatized. I needed to, there was so much stuff that we needed to do, but we put it all together. We went to the South Pole. There were seven international teams taking part in the race. Only three finished, and Brahm and I were one of those three teams. And um, it was another spectacular event um, and uh, an adventure of epic proportions with many, many, many stories to tell, which we don't have time for now. But, you know, again, getting to the South Pole, raising the South African flag over that pole 100 years after the first people uh, to get there, Amundsen and, and Scott 35 days later, was just um, such a privilege and honor for me, you know. It's quite appropriate that the Norwegians won it and the Brits were second. Uh, but the South Africans were nowhere when, when Amundsen and Scott were thinking of a uh, hundred years previously. So well done to you guys. But, but the, the theme that comes through in your book uh, continuously is this idea of mind over matter in the, the power of the mind, the, the, the potential that we have as a species, as human beings. You know, it's, it's something that's fascinated me, Alec, and, I, and it's a subject that I'm going to be speaking about at the, um, at the conference is, you know, what are we able to achieve? Have, have we kept our abilities? Or are we uncapped human beings? You know, I've always considered myself and still consider myself just to be an ordinary person. I don't have anything. Um, I'm not a, um, one of those natural athletes, um, and I learned very quickly early on, and, and particularly uh, just after I finished school um, in my life, that that um, anything that is noteworthy, worthy of telling a story, anything great that we want to achieve in life is going to have to be um, um, gotten through, uh, you know, suffering. There's, there's definitely hard stuff that's going to happen to us. Um, and our ability to overcome that is not a physical thing. Um, and that the battles that we face are won and lost inside our heads. Let me give you an example of this. Um, rowing, it's uh, four o'clock in the morning. It's day 50. You're on your own. You're sitting on a rowing boat. Your hands are blistered and raw almost to the bone. You'll see pictures of it at the conference. Um, your backside um, has got boils or pressure sores um, um, on it. You won't see pictures of that at the conference. Those are for special friends. <laughs> And um, and at that time, there are thoughts going through your head. And for me, th those that four o'clock in the morning session was just the hardest. You know, I think you know it's physically impossible to row another twenty-four hours like this. You know, your mind starts playing tricks with you. You know, the best thing that you can do right now is pull those oars in and go and sleep. You know, and rest until the sun comes up, and then maybe get on the satellite phone and get somebody to come and you know get you the hell out of there, passing ship. Because that's what you're doing, because that's what it feels like. 
we've all been there at that, you know, at that point in our lives where those voices start speaking to us. But but what makes us um, change? What makes us go, okay, no, I need to finish this shift. I need to stick to that whole discipline thing, you know. Um, and I've realized that, um, so let me give you an example. So when I'm finished that rowing shift, so I'd finish it an hour and a half and I'd go rest for an exactly hour and a half. And during that hour and a half, I would have that phone call. I would make that satellite phone call to Kim. Okay, so that was one of the treats that I looked forward to. So I'd speak to Kim after that last shift, that sun, uh, just before the sun. The sun comes up and I have breakfast. Those three things happen. The very next shift, I'm sitting back on that seat and I'm rowing like a beast again, as if that 24 hours previously hadn't happened. Um, and so, so what is the difference between that time and that four o'clock in the morning session uh, three hours earlier or, or hour and a half earlier? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. There's been a chemical change in your mind and there have been triggers that have allowed those chemicals to change the way you operate and the way you think. Um, so, I mean, you hear things like mind over matter and you know, there's lots of cliched stuff around that that we could speak about, but it is very real. We absolutely have control over how um, we handle things um, you know, internally. Um, it's much easier to do that when you're faced by a challenge um, as opposed to being faced by adversity. Adversity is very different to challenges because challenges are self-imposed, mainly, generally speaking. So when I'm rowing, those things are challenges for me. Adversity is things like my doctor telling me I've got cancer or you know, somebody dying or me you know, breaking my leg uh, during the row. There's, those are different kinds of things. And they also can be handled in your head, but it's, it's, a, lot, uh, it's a lot harder. <laughs> so the Eighth Summit is really, the book, The Eighth Summit, is really about those three expeditions, the first row, second row, and South Pole, you know, all the lessons that I've learned from that that, that helped me cope and helped me deal with um, you know, those struggles that we have internally inside our heads. Um, and then also, it's, you know, it's, there are inspirational anecdotes and inspirational lessons on very basic um, uh, universal laws that apply to us being able to take control um, over our minds. So the Eighth Summit, you know, the seven continents, um, climbers want to climb the highest peak on each continent. There's seven of them. And the Eighth Summit is us. Uh, and, and I suppose that's like what that is probably one of the most important things that we can do in our lives is really understanding that we have no limits um, and um, that there are things that we can do and processes that we can put in place in our lives to make sure that we can achieve the things um, that we want to uh, that we set out uh, to achieve terms and conditions apply also in your book you have you start each chapter with an inspirational quote. I have a, a little book somewhere where when I come across a, a really interesting quote that I'd like to remember, I make a note of it. Do you have something similar? And uh, and what's your selection or what was your selection process when you put the book together on, on which of those many quotes uh, to use? So, um, you know, there's so many quotes when it comes to resilience and perseverance. And there's so many people that have written about it, you know, from their own perspectives. Um, and, I, and I suppose when I wrote the book, I, I just went on a bit of a mission to find the most pertinent ones. Um, 
there have been ones that I've known for for many many years, um, and 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 the one that sticks out for me the most um, is that Roosevelt quote. And um, to give you a little bit, I beg your pardon. Yeah, the, the arena, arena one, and mm -hmm. it, it's classic. I was doing a talk for Hertz a couple of years ago, and um, when Joel Stransky was still the CEO, I don't I don't know if you remember, he was still CEO, and I, and I was sitting next to him at, at dinner, um, and afterwards, and he said to me, Pete. You have no idea how that quote was such an, a pivotal part of their winning that, that famous World Cup where he did the dropkick. He said, because they were sitting in the change room at full time. And uh, the coach, Keith Christie, if I remember correctly, Kitch, um, yeah, walked Kitch in. Kitch Christie. Mm. Kitch Christie, yeah, walked in. And he said, boys. And he said he didn't say one other word except that quote. <laughs> And then he walked out again. And uh, that still gives me goosebumps today because it's um, – and, and if, you, if anybody's watching this when they do, just go and have a look at that, uh, the arena quote, Roosevelt. It is spectacular. Um, and and it's, it's something that's resonated with me very deeply in my life um, um, and is, has really helped me in, in, in tough times as well. He, he talks there about the critics, the those who are yeah. in the grandstand. And Do you want me to tell it to you? I know it off by heart. Well, please. Okay, so he says, it's not the critic that counts, nor the man who points out where the strong man has stumbled or where the doer of deeds could have done better. The credit belongs to you, the man in the arena, whose face is marred by sweat and dust and blood, who knows great passions, who devotes himself to a worthy cause. So that in the end, if he succeeds, he does so with great triumph. But if he fails, he at least does so whilst daring greatly. So that his place, her place, will not be amongst the cold and timid souls who have neither known victory nor defeat. <laughs> so, you know, it's such an inspirational thing because there are so many people that sit in their lives, they, they go to work every single day. They really hope that something great is going to happen. And obviously, it doesn't unless you make it happen. There's so many people that sit with such great um, aspirations for their lives, dreams um, and, and hopes. Um, and they, they don't get it together because they are worried about what happens if I can't? You know, um, what are people going to think of me? That may be one of the things they think about. But um, that sense that, it doesn't matter <laughs> what happens if you just start the journey and you push and you do it. If you fail, just get up and, you know, be tenacious, be resilient. Um, resilience is all about recovering from failure um, and then putting uh, things in place to make sure that when you start again, you've, you've covered that area and that you can get through it. So I think that's, it's really inspired me. So I've had expeditions in my life where I've been pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing and pushing and, um, you know, and every now and then, you know, something happens and you, you, you go a couple of steps backwards, but, uh, got to remember that when you are in the arena, that's the most important thing, you know, um, and that's where we are going to be triumphant, whether we fail, whether we get back up again and go, or whether we succeed, it's, it doesn't matter. You know, the credit belongs to those people. <laughs> Peter, I, it's I a good, it, place to, it. good place to end, but we're not going to end there because you did mention in passing perhaps a little earlier that you're working on another adventure. 
uh, a couple of years hence. So what next? What is next for Peter van Ketz? Okay, so um, I would like to do, I have one really big expedition I would still love to do and I've uh, been working on it quite hard. And that is a circumnavigation um, around the world on the Tropic of Capricorn um, on land and sea. Um, and it will be a, um, a naturally powered uh, expedition. So that means wind powered over the sea. So I'll sail the ocean bits, um, it's three oceans, Indian, Atlantic, uh, Pacific, um, it's three continents that I will trek, run, mountain bike, kayak, and uh, paraglide. Um, and that is Africa, South America, Australia, and Madagascar. Um, so, you know, one of the last great adventures that hasn't been done. Um, I'm busy chatting to a guy called John Lucas at the moment from Explore for Knowledge. Um, and we are... Hoping, hopefully going to hook up uh, together um, and he will come along as part of the journey to, to um, document um, stories um, that we can all learn from. So, you know, a little bit more of a scientific approach uh, to some of the stories we're going to tell, whether it's climate change or education around kids or, um, you know, most old expeditions had a scientist or two that went with them and just you know, did things. And, and that's what I would like to do with this expedition. So it has met w way more meaning than just, you know, Pete van Kitts doing this expedition around the planet. It, it will have a much deeper scientific meaning than, than just that. So something very exciting. We're looking for sponsors at the moment. So, um, and it's a big global expedition. It's going to take 14 months to do. Very exciting. So it wouldn't exactly be around the world in 80 days, uh, but it might be a, an update of Jules Verne's book, Around the World in 14 Months. My goodness. And, and that's a couple of years uh, of planning still into that. Mm, so end of next year. So two years' time. And how old will you be then? I will be 56 years old. <laughs> Isn't that some people would say, goodness, time to retire? <laughs> So, you know, I, it's a, I don't ever perceive myself to be old because, I mean, I know some people say, keep thinking, Pete, hey, when are you going to stop? When are you going to stop? And uh, when I think of myself, I, I, it's like I was when I did my first row. You know, I don't see myself as any different, um, you know, physically, probably mentally a lot better. I mean, I'm still doing lots of big adventure races, um, which are super tough. Um, racing and I, you know, I'm keeping myself physically together, you know, as much as possible. Um, yeah. So <laughs> when I did South Pole with Brom, um, that was in 2011. He was 54 years old. Yeah. Yeah. War Warren Buffett of Berkshire Hathaway, their official age of retirement is 103. And we've decided to adopt that at Business as well. So uh, we're on the same page. Pete, look forward to seeing you. <laughs> In the yeah. Berg at the, yes. at the end of March. And, and thanks again for, for sharing your story with us today. Absolute pleasure, Alec. Thank you so much. 